to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us Troy Foster, partner at Perkins Coie and co-chair of its Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Group. Troy, thank you so much for joining us today. Really happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a uh, 99 Columbia Law grad. And right after graduating, I went to clerk for a federal judge on the Ninth Circuit in, uh, uh, in Pasadena, California. I was a clerk for the Honorable Alex Kaczynski for a year. Troy, he's a little bit of a character, isn't he? Uh, yeah, he is. He is. He is a polarizing uh, uh, figure. That is uh, that is for sure. But uh, I um, I can't say enough good things about him. I mean, I I learned a ton in that year. Um, I became a you know I, I learned to write uh, in that year, and and you know just his mentoring, even you know kind of beyond the the clerkship year has been um, one of the great gifts of, uh, of my career. So I know that not everybody, yeah, there's different, you know, kind of perspectives out there and, and right. uh, we probably shouldn't get into all that, but uh, I have a lot of aloha in my heart for Judge Kaczynski. Well, I'll always remember him. He spoke to my law school uh, when I was there, very entertaining character. He was uh, singing Sinatra songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I can, uh, I can yeah. believe it with, uh, with the accent. In, in <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. sorry to cut you off there. Uh, go, no, go no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so after that year, um, I uh, started at Wilson Tonsini in Palo Alto. This was, you know, kind of the the early aughts. And it was just a, a pretty wild time to step in as a, um, uh, you know, as an emerging companies associate, you know, was there for 14 years, uh, the last five of which uh, I was a partner all sorts of um, uh, different things, everything, you know, clean tech, biotech, did a little bit of social media work, um, you know, very, very broad practice. And uh, it was a good learning platform, really, really great, you know, um, uh, place to to kind of grow up and cut your teeth. One of the companies that I started working with there back, you know, I actually formed the company, my, my name's on the certificate of incorporation as the uh, incorporator was this company, TrueCar. And when uh, when we were in the process of taking True Car public, uh, the CEO, you know, sort of pulled me in a room and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so um, I joined uh, True Car as the head of legal and compliance. Um, I like to say I went from the the cover of the S one to the uh, to the interior. <laughs> it was the uh-huh. name executive officers. And so um, you know, we we sort of um, led the legal department through that process successfully got the offering done built out the um the legal department on the other side of it so that we had a uh you know kind of a, a top tier public company legal department that could get all of our reports done on time and all that good stuff after uh, after a few years of that I decided to come back to private practice and that is when I joined Perkins and so that would have been right at the end of uh 2016 and I've been here uh ever since and as you mentioned earlier, like about a year ago, um, I was asked to 
take over as the co-chair of our emerging companies and venture capital group. And uh, so that has been uh, quite a whirlwind. Uh, it's been a very interesting uh, year, but that's uh, that's going well. And uh, that sort of catches us up to where we are today. So Troy, was somebody else the chair of emerging companies and venture capital group? And then you got kind of shoved in as the co-chair or did somebody leave and two co-chairs replace that one? Person? Uh, somebody left and two co-chairs uh, sort of stepped into the uh, stepped into the breach. Yeah, that's probably yeah. the better way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, but uh, that that, you know, I'd never um, really sort of aspired to, you know, law firm leadership. Right. I'd always been focused on my practice and it has been it's been uh, you know you've had to take a more expansive kind of view of the practice right because we have a nationwide practice we've got you know offices in all sorts of different locations across the country like many places where our, our competitors don't have offices where Boise Portland you know um, Denver and and so that has been a very eye-opening experience why don't you tell folks where you're located so I'm in our Palo Alto office uh, but I also get up to San Francisco pretty frequently. And, and and I was born and raised in LA. So I usually spend a couple of days a month cultivating, you know, relationships down there as well. Great. Yeah. I didn't really want to go into it, but since you brought up LA, then I've got to ask, you went to Beverly Hills High School and it must have been when Beverly Hills 90120 <laughs> was on was on TV, was it not? Well, b- believe it or not, I'm so old that uh, my my high school experience predated that uh, that television show. I believe that that came out either when I was a senior in high school or when I was in college. Ah, and it was super accurate portrayal, right? <laughs> not in the least. They didn't even <laughs> shoot it at uh, they didn't even shoot it at the high school. They shot it at another high school that was in uh, LAUSD. It wasn't even in the the Beverly Hills district. Oh, man. Well, well, we're here today to talk about down rounds. And uh, uh, Troy and Scott Blyer from Morse talked about down rounds at the latest American Bar Association meeting, which was in Washington, D.C. in September. Uh, Both of you did a really, really amazing job. And so thank you. Um, Thanks very much. That's why Troy is here. So we like to talk about down rounds. So you mentioned you were at Wilson Cincini for 13 years. So it seems there you went through another recession. Um, I don't mean a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of them. Okay. And uh, so it seemed like a good you've been company side and then you've been at two, you know, two major law firms and going through recession. I don't know if we can count this one as a recession, but a little bit of a slowdown, particularly for some businesses pandemic affected uh, businesses in different ways, but definitely there was a, a fair number of down rounds. Troy, t- tell us, what, why don't you first tell the audience what a down round is? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, uh, the, the round in the down round is, the, is, is what, what is known as a round of venture financing, right? And, and typically these are um, denoted by letters, right? And so your first institutional round is typically called your Series A round, you know, your next, your Series B, and, and so on. Um, and the, the, one of the, you know, in a, in a good market with a company that's performing well, these rounds will typically become more and more expensive, right, on a per share basis. Uh, each of each as the rounds go, and that that you know denotes the company increasing in value, kind of following each of the investments, and so those are typically called up rounds. But what will happen occasionally, and and we're seeing it more frequently now, is you know just to give an example, 
if your A round uh, was priced at a dollar, but you know your B round is going to be priced at something lower than a dollar, um, that's known as a down round. Um, and that denotes the company getting financed at a valuation that is lower than the valuation from the previous round. Now, Troy, does it matter how much is being raised in the down down rounds? I mean, how much do you how much do you see in down rounds compared to kind of previous rounds? Say they had an A and then a B, and let's say what well, what's a typical number that you see for a Series A in terms of how much is being raised? Yeah, I mean, normally what we're seeing in the A's, you know, I mean, it's a pretty broad range, right? But I would say the 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 bullseye is probably between five and twenty. To, to answer your specific question, though, about, about does the amount matter in a down round, it, it does, usually. And this will get a little bit into the mechanics of it, but the, the way that venture investors seek protection from down rounds tends to be through an anti-dilution adjustment mechanism. And so what that means is that if a financing is going to happen that is going to be dilutive, that is to say, the value of the the company has gone down and so the company is going to issue shares at some price that's lower than the investor that that bought into the the previous round there's a adjustment to their conversion ratio and that's the ratio at which their preferred shares convert into common shares and normally it's a it's a broad based weighted average adjustment and in that context the amount that you raise actually matters because it impacts how severe the adjustment is. Now, is the adjustment right away or is it, sometimes it's in the next round, correct? So that adjustment uh, happens at the closing of the down round financing. Um, and if you have you know, down rounds that are going to have multiple closings, that can get tricky because you can have, you know, right, you can have multiple adjustments on those um, uh, as they go. But yeah, that, that adjustment takes place automatically at the closing, um, sort of the, the mechanism is baked into the charters. You mentioned anti-dilution provision, the weighted average versus full ratchet for um, in financings, particularly like the last couple of years when things were really hot. Were in, in almost every deal you see, is there an anti-dilution provision or have some companies been successful in removing it altogether? Well, I haven't really seen companies be successful in removing it altogether. It's pretty typical, though, that the type of adjustment would be the, the broad-based weighted average, which is the most, what I'll call, gentle of these. There's a narrow-based weighted average, which is incrementally you know, more severe. And then there is a um, uh, what is known as a full ratchet adjustment, which is the most severe. We haven't really seen full ratchets probably for 12 years or so. And so the market really mm -hmm. had you know, sort of stabilized around the, the broad-based weighted average adjustments. Right, because the full ratchet is like kind of unfair. If you raise, back to my previous <laughs> yeah. question about how many, uh, how much is being raised, if you raise, you know, $3 million at $3 a share, and then you raise $500 million at $2.95, then it's two totally different things. And it's not right. really, uh, yeah, 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 you know, it shouldn't kick in some, something where somebody gets extra shares. Yeah, no, you're 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 right, and that that's largely the argument that folks on the company side made around kind of not getting into full ratchet adjustments. It's also very very difficult 
to uh, to keep your team motivated if you're if you're doing full ratchet adjustments because it's just massive swings of uh, of equity value you know internally. Right, Troy. In your current practice, are you mostly on the company side or the investor side? I would say it's probably about 70-30 company side these days. Okay, then you would be a good person to answer this next question. What kind of alternatives do companies seek before they do a down round? I'm assuming their gut reaction when they need more money is not, hey, let's do a down round. Uh, I assume that they do a, a lot before they have to get there. That's right. So, so the sequence tends to be right. Everybody's optimistic when they're, uh, you know, when they're when they're out trying to raise, and then you know, when it is clear that the only available capital is sort of not going to value the company on par with what it's been valued before. You tend to put a lot of energy into arguing for a flat round, and sometimes that's successful, you know. But in the current market environment, uh, you know, it's just getting harder and harder to sustain. So there, people will sort of see if there are the possibility, uh, you know, the, the the possibility of getting a bridge in place, just to to sort of give the, the the company, you know, sort of more time, more runway, so that they don't have to raise right now. With the thinking being that maybe the market turns around, maybe the company's fortunes turn around, right? You kind of get your you, you kind of get through this downturn. Um, and get to a place where you're you're on better footing. If the bridge is isn't successful, then there's a usually a thought around how long or what things can be done internally to extend the runway. Um, you know, to try to make sure that you're exploring all of your alternatives, right? In that context, um, uh, you know, so you don't have to go to a down round. And then the discussion can then quickly talk to whether there are potential acquisition partners. That, that could step in to just alleviate the need for the down round by, by you know, kind of creating a, a, an exit. Let's unpack a little bit of that. You mentioned flat round. I assume that would be the same valuation as the last round? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how, how do you see bridge as structured? A couple of different ways. So the most popular instrument, actually, that that you know is kind of a, a more of a recent development has been the SAFES, which is a simple agreement for future equity. And the benefit of those is uh, that they're, you know, you, you don't have to spend a lot of time, you know, negotiating, right? The the form is pretty well accepted. Um, there are a couple of things, discount cap, uh, um, you know, some side letter provisions that people spend some calories on, but for the most part, you're able to get up and down on those deals pretty efficiently and, and pretty quickly. The, the other mechanism that we see are, um, you know, kind of convertible notes and, there's a little bit more um, in the way of custom cabinetry around negotiating terms and things like that. Um, you know, there, there, those can also come with some covenants that can be uncomfortable uh, uh, for the company. And, and you know, in some cases, depending on who the um, who the lender is, um, you know, you might even see security interest in in some or, or you know, in some cases, all of the company's assets, which can be uncomfortable for the existing investors. So the alternatives are not uh, necessarily, you know, um, uh, rosy in this case either. Now for a convertible note in the bridge financing, do you need consent of the earlier investors? So typically you will, you know, in the the venture deals, there's a couple of places where um, this would come up. One would be in the charter, in the, the protective provisions where, um, you know, a certain vote of the preferred 
would potentially be required for this, uh, and the other would be in the investor rights agreement, or you know, sometimes called shareholders agreement, where um, you know there will be contractual obligations for the company to obtain a certain you know majority or supermajority consent before it takes certain actions. Um, and debt will these kinds of debt things will often find their way into these um, uh, into those provisions. My next question, Troy, is going to be about common provisions that you see in down rounds. But before I get to that, one um, one one question I have is why investors in a down round, why would they not just ask for a convertible note? It seems like they would be in a better position to have debt in the company and then have it convert at some time later. So why, why do people still are still having an equity financing when a company is clearly in trouble? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the convert is you're you're sort of putting the ultimate kind of valuation decision in someone else's hands down the line. So so you're absolutely right about the notion of it being, you know, the 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 debt being a more secure instrument than the equity, right? If you're if you're, you know, kind of thinking about it from the standpoint of downside, I think most venture investors though um are are less focused on that and more focused on making sure that they're getting the asset kind of at, at what they perceive to be the right price. And so, you know, kind of coming in with a down round really allows for you to reprice the asset and make sure that you're getting the price that you think is appropriate. In the context of a, um, of a, of a note, right, you might have a discount, you might have a cap, but you're, you're ultimately putting that pricing decision in, in someone else's hands. Okay. I can see that, see that argument. Uh, okay, well, why don't we go right into it? Why don't you tell folks about some of the common terms that you see in down rounds, and you can start wherever you want. Troy, the you know the the largest things like pay to play or kind of smaller things, however, however you think feel would be most helpful. Uh, yeah, sure. So normally, just kind of going down the term sheet in my head, right? Your price is going to be first up. Then you're going to see either the question for the you know for the existing investors right whether they would waive um you know their adjustment or whether that adjustment is going to flow through that's usually something the the new investors will will have some input on and and may um you know kind of put in their uh in their term sheet you know typically if the if the new investors are excited about the team they'll want to have a pool increase to make sure that they can get options to the members of the team that they want to hang on to to make sure that people are motivated on the uh, uh on the back end of the deal they're not jumping ship they're, yeah exactly exactly you know there's usually a change to the board composition and you know it could be that the new investors will put an individual on the board or it could be that if the view is that you know a, a total reset is needed they could really uh remake the the entirety of the board i've i've seen it both ways on that if you're if the if it's a syndicate of investors coming in and people are reasonably confident that the the company is going to need to to raise additional capital and they want to be able to hold each other's feet to the fire in terms of those future financings the the pay to play mechanism is the is the way to do that and it would get instituted in the round so not necessarily applicable to the existing investors um although possibly 
Um, it just depends on how much support is perceived to be needed from the from the existing group. Tell us a little bit about pay to play, because that's kind of the first for a lot of us when we hear down around the end, first thing we think about is pay to play. So why don't you explain a little bit what pay to play is referring to? Yeah, sure. So um, a, a pay to play mechanism is a mechanism whereby an existing uh, investor, in order to maintain the the either the preference on their shares or um, in some cases their you know relative uh, uh, ownership, needs to invest at least you know some some designated amount of their pro rata into the company. And the consequence for people that fail to to do that is, you know, it's typically that their preferred equity will be automatically converted into common shares. Uh, And and in some cases, you know, it's it's converted uh, not on a one to one, but as a, um, you know, as a as a fraction. Now, how often do you see that, Troy? It's not that's not not very often, but. You know, when I think about the battle days of, uh, you know, call it 2001-ish, people were people were getting really creative about ways to create the right incentives for um, for people to participate because the companies were were in a lot of trouble. And one thing that you mentioned at the ABA conference that I found was interesting is that pay to play that you've actually seen exclusions for the smaller investors, which strikes me as really equitable. Uh, some of these folks, I mean, you might have Uncle Bob or whatever that that put in and that, uh, you know, don't really need to be subject to a pay to play. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I agree with you that it's equitable. It's it's very difficult to um, implement. Right. Because it's like a it's a, it's a little bit of a knives out scenario. Right. When, <laughs> when you know, you're you're in this moment. And if you are I mean, normally when you're when you're talking through creating exemptions for people, you're making arguments like, okay, well, this is a, um, you know, th- this investor is strategic to the company in one way or another, or it's not going to be worth the brain damage, right, around, you know, converting people below a certain threshold, right? So, so can we kind of create a band where this makes sense, right? You're going to, this is, this, these are the people that have enough uh, skin in the game for it to be meaningful for our raise, without, you know, kind of trying to go down the entire cap table. But it does, you know, that that's one where you, you really, you really do need to have virtually everyone on board because creating those exemptions without broad support can can create fiduciary issues. So you you talked about pay to play and there's also pull up financing, which a lot of folks might not be familiar with. It's kind of less known. What's a uh, pull up? What is that referring to? Yeah, it's a slightly different way to to kind of get to the same outcome, right? And essentially what that involves is just a broad conversion of preferred shares into common shares, but you create a, a sort of mechanism whereby investors that invest whatever the designated percentage of their pro rata is, one of the benefits that they get for investing is they get to exchange those common shares for preferred uh, shares in the financing as part of the deal. Now, you mentioned a few times about investors consenting, and we know that in Silicon Valley, everyone knows each other, supposedly, and they try to be nice to each other uh, and <laughs> sort of a, a kind of a 
code there almost. Yeah. Uh, now, how many times do these early investors say, no, I'm not going to go along with that. This uh, the, this company, for whatever reason, maybe I'm upset at the CEO or whatnot. Maybe I don't like these other people who are coming in, uh, these inv- investors here. And no, I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to go along with that. Now, d- does that ever does that ever actually happen? I mean, it happens. It's less frequent, uh, you know, than, than you might think, right? And if you think about institutional investors, I mean, they they have uh, fiduciary duties to their LPs and, and that sort of thing, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's a bad look for them to sit on their rights in a way that would cause a company to go under when there is a financing opportunity available. So I, look, these are hard negotiations, right? Like people... Right. People take positions, friendships get broken, you know, it's definitely a, uh, a blood sport and there's some brinksmanship that that happens for sure. And it's really, you know, uh, honestly, it's very stressful as the company's sort of mm-hmm. heading for the wall and, and you know, people are off in their corners and, and trying to squeeze a little bit extra here and, and there. But for the most part, at least my experience is you, you are able to get it done and, and get the requisite uh, approvals that you need. The rise of the sort of angel investors and the super angel investors, right, where they're not responsible for anyone else's money, it's only their own money, right? Those people tend to be a little bit less constrained by um, the the kinds of, you know, fiduciary obligations that, you know, the institutional guys are. So that's, that's, you know, I think going to be something that's a little bit different this time around than, than the last time around. So, you know, you may you may see more holdouts, right? Like that I could definitely see as a as a consequence of this. Now, uh continuing to go down the term sheet that's that's in your head, uh let's talk about liquidity preference. So, I know the last few years the liquidity preference was fairly low, so I don't know what you Yeah. See. You know, it's funny. I was having this conversation with a client yesterday who was sort of saying, you know, I mean, I I mean, I think uh uh one has been the um you know one x liquidation preference on top of the um uh that that's been the the standard um i've seen a couple of one and a halfs in the last call it uh uh 6 months but i can definitely see that number going up right and early in my career it wasn't it was it was not necessarily uncommon to run into a um you know kind of a 2x or or even a 3x you know this is one of those situations though where where modeling is just critical right like right. this is a this is a really hard business to be in if you're math phobic right like you you know it's it's getting the spreadsheet out and looking at the impact of okay if we were to give someone a 3x liquidation preference right what would that mean on a 10 million dollar exit on a 50 million dollar exit on a 100 million dollar exit right because the the, the you kind of go through it and and it makes a difference. The other thing that makes a difference is whether that is participating or non-participating, right? Because the beauty of non-participating preferred, in my view, is it, it it really sets a goal for the team to hit to make sure that everybody gets treated equally in the deal. And having you know worked on these kinds of transactions for Twenty plus years, having been in house, like the 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 teams are really sophisticated and they understand the math on that. No one is uh, uh, laboring under any you know kind of misconceptions about how all that stuff works. Well, when um, you talk so, about that, Troy, that you were talking about goal. So, what kind of goal are you talking about? Like an exit at a certain amount? Is that what? You yeah, mean? yeah. How much? How much we need to sell? 
the company for, you know, in order for, um, you know, to clear the uh, the liquidation preferences, right? Because once you've cleared the preferences on a non-participating, then everybody converts to common and, you know, participates in that way. And those those, those are the deals that, that are the most successful. Okay. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in the, uh, in the down round financing? Well, um, you know, I will just put a plug in for our uh, Delaware colleagues. You know, there, there tends to be a lot of pressure on these deals, right? You, you're, you know, you want to get them done quickly and and you kind of want to limit the process. But it, it, is, it could, you know, it's it's sort of an odd thing. But this is actually the, the, the transaction where process is most important. And because of the high friction around uh, people being on the receiving end of pay to plays and, and, you know, losing rights when it comes to the conversion of their preferred into common. I always uh, think it's really important to get Delaware Council involved on the front end to really make sure that you have someone on call for the tricky Delaware questions that inevitably come up. And if you happen to have, you know, someone litigious on the cap table, you know, having, you know, one of the strong Delaware firms on call is, is you know, pretty important to making sure that you stay on track in that process. Yeah. And there's a couple of things we could talk about sec- that you all talked about in the, um, in the, in the presentation, Section 228E notices, which are very important to go ahead and send out those notices. Yeah. And- also, the different, and if if you'd like, you can tell folks what what we're referring to there. Uh, yeah, sure. So the two twenty eight E notice is the notice that is required by Delaware when you are going to have an action by written consent of the stockholders, uh, but you have not solicited all of those stockholders, right? So you know, typically in in these deals, you know, you've you've got a pretty closely held company, and so you can get to the requisite majorities just with the um you know stockholders that are sitting around the board table and you know potentially a handful of others and so in that context you don't necessarily always launch a, a stockholder solicitation that that goes out broadly uh, but what what the Delaware code requires is that if you don't go out broadly to the stockholders that you give them notice of the stockholder action promptly following the the taking of the action and so promptly is not defined in the in the Delaware code I think that was the that was the joke that people were making at the uh, um, you know at the conference like like how long is promptly right. um, and it's one of those things that's uh, you know a little bit you kind of know it when you see it right if you've taken an action and the calendar is flipped over right and you're sort of not you know no one has been noticed of it right that that's probably not promptly um we try to um you know get those out you know within about a week or so of uh, of having taken the uh, the action yeah it's good that they didn't because you can imagine a situation where christmas eve at night something happens and then right. what if you don't notify them until you know january 2nd or the 3rd yeah, that's uh, you know arguable there. I know uh, for my clients, when I say, "Okay, you need a majority of stockholders to go along with it," immediately they accept. Oh, we've got that. You know, I've got uh, Jeff, Ed, and Sally. You know, they're going to go along with it. And then I say, "Well," and you got to notify everyone else. That's when they get quiet. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> you know, they would rather not do that. Sure. Um, 
And then the last thing I'll ask you about is the another Delaware thing, the the whole thing about business judgment rule and entire fairness rule. Obviously, we always want to stay in the business judgment rule, and it's really critical in the round um, down round context. As you said, there's a you know oftentimes there's a lot of money at stake. There's institutional players who are used to <laughs> litigation and not afraid of the expense necessarily. So if you'd like to, Troy, you know, to you, if you'd like to touch on this, you know, how that's implicated. In- yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think you're 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 spot on there, right? In terms of the preference to be in the in the business judgment analysis because of the deference that the courts give to management's decisions in that context. The challenge with down rounds tends to be that you don't always have the benefit of an independent board that you can run an independent board process or, or you know, like stockholder, uh, you know, approval of the stockholders that are, you know, not necessarily interested in the transaction. Um, and so I think when you're you're in that universe, chances are you're, you're going to be looked at in an entire fairness, you know, kind of lens, right, which is, which is, you know, is backward looking, right, that 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 accounts for all of the good things that have happened, for, you know, to the company right. in the in the in the subsequent period and charges, uh, uh, you know, management and the board with, um, you know, not having the foresight of those things, right. So that that can be a very uncomfortable position to, uh, to be in. I think the 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 general rule of thumb is to try to do a rights offering where you can. So the the thought there is that if you give people the opportunity to participate on the same terms that the insiders have participated in, that that blunts the argument that this was a, you know, kind of a sweetheart deal that was designed to enrich the insiders at the expense of, of everyone else. If you make the rights offering and you allow for you know, everyone, usually everyone that's accredited, um, that there is that one wrinkle is you can't generally, um, you know, pull in people that aren't accredited. But so long as you can make that argument, I think generally speaking, people feel pretty good that you've um, you've protected yourself on on that front as best you can. Uh, folks who might be listening in who are in law school and uh, taking taking classes about all this stuff and governance might say, oh, you know, I really thought that uh, Gary and Troy, we're going to talk about independent committees and uh, that being the way to go in any kind of down round. Uh, but as both you and I know, usually, or at least in my experience, the company puts off having to do a down round as long as possible. And then they they kind of need the money the next week. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, that there's a there's a good law school answer and then there's a good practical answer. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, uh, what we see is, you know, the Delaware guys raise this right when you have the conversation with them. Because, you know, frankly, that is the gold standard, right? I mean, you'd, you'd love to have that in every case if you could, but it's just a question of, you know, particularly for companies that I'm working with, it's a question of where you're going to deploy resources. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, kind of pulling in independent directors so that they can run a process, uh, you know, that you might need in the future is balanced again against bringing in one more engineer or one more salesperson or one more person that's going to drive the ops, like the management teams, you know, they're going to make that decision, you know, right every time, right? And right. and so, um, you know, you, you don't, we, we, we tend not to have the luxury of a fully independent committee that could, you know, run run that kind of process. Yeah, not just resources, but time. Uh, right. I know it's rare. Yeah, it's rare that hey, in two months we're going to need need this. So you have two months to put together an independent committee. Usually, it's um, can be measured more in hours. Right. Right. Um, 
Well, great. Well, anything else that you'd like to uh, tell the listeners? You know, thank you so much for your thoughts, Troy. Yeah, no, listen, I, um, I just really uh, appreciate the opportunity. I think what the ABA does is, is terrific, and uh, I'm happy to support it. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.